Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. In the year 2000, the Russian sociologist Yuri Levada penned an essay on what he labeled the wily man. He wrote that this new species of post-Soviet Russia not only tolerates deception, but is willing to be deceived and even requires self-deception for the sake of his own preservation. This figure was clever and resourceful and could adapt and even succeed by exploiting loopholes, cracks, and crevices in the system. Fast forward 20 years, and, as Joshua Yaffa shows in his rich and novelistic tour of contemporary Russia, the wily man is in many respects the archetype of the new Putinist person. These are men and women who temper their ideals and compromise with the Russian state to extract all manner of benefits and privileges from those in power. To get a better sense of what this Russian wily man is, and how it's reflected in Russian life, and what it means for Russia writ large, I turned to Josh for some insight. Joshua Yaffa is a correspondent for The New Yorker in Moscow and a prize-winning journalist. He's the author of Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia, published by Penguin Random House. Here's Josh Yaffa. So, uh, just to start our conversation, uh, please introduce yourself. My name is Joshua Yaffa. I'm the New Yorker correspondent in Moscow, where I've lived for the past eight or so years. And and uh, how long have you been writing for the New Yorker? I guess uh, my first piece for the New Yorker appeared in 2015. Um, so that was that was five years ago. Um, wasn't writing for them full time um, right away. Um, but uh, yeah, my first uh, my first piece was in the magazine uh, uh, back back then. Actually, let me ask you something about being a, a the kind of Moscow or Russia correspondent for the New Yorker. It it seems to me quite unique that a magazine like that would have a correspondent in in Russia. Um, what what do you think? Is this just basic because of David Remnick's connection to Ru- and interest in Russia, or you know they actually do a lot of coverage of Russia? Yeah, hard to hard to say um, uh, because I'm actually so far away from the mothership. Uh, of course, it has a lot to do with uh, David Remnick's experience, interest, uh, and, and continuing um, uh, desire to have the magazine uh, cover Russia. He knows of what he speaks and 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 knows uh, what is um, important, interesting to him, and also to readers. Just has a very good eye for Russia. So I think that, of course, helps when your subject happens to be of 
uh, particular interest um, to the um, editor in chief. But from from what I can tell, and again, I'm I'm no real authority on the New Yorker as an institution by virtue of being so far physically away from it. But you know, it doesn't have the traditional newspaper style network of of global correspondence and bureaus and things like that, and a bureaucracy in which people are constantly being moved from one posting to the next. Things are much more um, ad hoc. Uh, and um, there may be a correspondent in one place at a certain moment in time. There may not be at another moment uh, in time. And, and a lot more, I think, is about the individuals and, and rather than um, filling out some sort of uh, global bureaucratic structure. So you have this uh, new book, uh, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. And of course, there's a long tradition of American correspondents writing books about you know, being in Russia, reporting from Russia and and what they observed. So what inspired you to write a book? I guess it was a dawning realization that there were things I wanted to say and and ideas I wanted to explore and and get across that I wasn't really finding the room for even in uh, a New Yorker article. And and that, uh, you know, made an impression on me given that New Yorker articles are five, six, seven thousand words. And so if there's something you're not able to fit into that. Um, well, that that's you know a whole lot of space to still have things left uh, unsaid. And it was the feeling that um, even, even that you know generous and fulsome uh, genre of a long form article in the New Yorker was still you know leaving me um, not unsatisfied, but feeling like I had more I wanted to talk about and 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 more kind of nuance, more history, um, more digressions, things that even in a magazine article of some length, don't always make it uh, into the final thing. Felt like there was enough there that held, that would hold my interest over time and that would actually hold up in terms of uh, a book. I, I had this kind of creeping uh, feeling that um, uh, it would be worth uh, my time and, and, and um, effort uh, to, to try and see if I couldn't think about some of these questions in a more sustained way uh, in book form. You know, you have colleagues and friends that are part of the journalistic core and reporting on Russia who have published books. Of course, like I said, there's a long tradition of American correspondents publishing books. Um, did you have a, a, a come at this with wanting to make a certain contribution that you felt was either new, lacking, or worthy of more exploration? Well, it was really a dialogue with, with myself uh, as a reporter, uh, first and foremost. And I, I came to Moscow in the winter of 2012 at the height of the Bolotnaya protest, what at the time were um, the biggest kind of political story in, in some time in, in, in Russia. Russia had been a pretty placid place, at least politically, for much of the Putin years and until then. So it was the first large-scale protests, and um, that certainly made an impression on, on me and a lot of journalists working in uh, Moscow. And, and like I said, I just arrived at the height of those protests. And and that was the initial prism through which I wrote about uh, Russia and really understood um, Putin's Russia came to make sense of it as uh, a journalist. And, and I've talked about this before, and I, and I talk about this in the book, the dichotomy of Putin's system versus protesters in the streets is not uh, wrong. That was not a, an incorrect prism, especially for writing about the story at that time. I think that was indeed the most important and relevant political story of that moment. But as that protest movement started to fade and the third Putin term started to take shape and really harden, in fact, beginning with some um, repressions or or rather a turn toward repressions that you could say continues um, today, 
I nonetheless began to feel that that paradigm or that dichotomy wasn't telling the whole story, wasn't capturing Russian society in all of its nuance and complexities as I understood it and all the things that really interested me. I think it just turned out that these sort of moral gray zones and conundrums and, and not being able to figure out was a person acting in a way that was honorable and dignified and understandable, or in fact, had they crossed a line and were acting out of either cowardice or venal self-interest, and not being able to locate that line and being somewhat confounded by it, that was just such an interesting intellectual idea uh, or for me to ponder. And I was drawn to finding ways um, to writing about that. And, and so it was that realization that perhaps that that kind of um, uh, dichotomy or that kind of uh, uh, question was the more, at, at least to me, compelling one, finding that that locating that point on the spectrum of compromise from where someone's actions go from being understandable or even honorable uh, to something much less than. Um, that just was was more interesting and I, and, and I thought maybe more telling as a way of making sense of Russia than the kind of uh, Putin system versus the protesters uh, dichotomy, which again is, is, is still one to this day that is worth um, is, is worth our attention and, 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 um, and is worth writing about as I often do for the New Yorker. But I was drawn to exploring something a bit different uh, in book form. Yeah, this goes to another thing, you know, the, the fact that there are, you know, if you look at all of the, the, the books about Putin's Russia, if you move away from, you know, the kind of new, um, the real granular focus of academia to more kind of popular consumed, you know, for amongst a well educated audience books on Russia, uh, they are kind of two broad genres of the Putin Russia book, there is, of course, the first, which is the focus on Putin and his circle and how he came to power, how he maintains power, this kind of thing. And then there's a, the other genre, which your book falls into, and that is trying to look at, you know, Russian people, to, to basically somewhat answer similar questions. And that is what, what allows for the longevity of Putin's presidency, you know, now going on and now possibly going on until, you know, 20, what, 2036. Um, so why did you, why do you, did your book, does your book focus on that latter genre? Sure. And, and really, I think the answer just comes down to that, the kind of reporting and the kind of storytelling that interests me and, and, and held my attention and, 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 um, provided this kind of genuine, um, appeal in terms of I myself wanted to, to get to the bottom of it or, or kind of spend some time intellectually thinking about these questions and working through them as, as a writer. So there was a, just a, a selfish element, I guess, if you can call it that of that's, that's the kind of reporting and writing that I was drawn to and wanted to immerse myself in. But I do think there's value in it, um, in that, the Putin system by this point, you know, 20 years in, like you said, could be 36 years in at, uh, before too long, is about much more than just Putin himself or even Putin and the kind of top people around him. I think it's really interesting to think about how they came to power and created this system. I'm, I'm loving, for example, Catherine Belton's book that goes into such meticulous and, and groundbreaking detail and exactly how this system um, came to be and how much it really is a collective of not just Putin, but but those in his inner circle around him. Um, where I thought I could add value is, is talking about what it's like to be in the reflection or the shadow, I guess, really, 
of that system and, and what is it like to be, if not exactly an everyday person in that my book isn't really about, you know, the kind of random babushka in a remote village or the, you know, guy who owns a produkti store in a small town. I, I am talking about characters who, because of their ambition and talents, rose to a certain level of prominence in the Putin system. But nonetheless, these are people to large extent, except for some, say, like Konstantin Ernst, the head of Channel One, but most of the characters are several rungs or, or layers out from the inner sanctum of power. And, and they're people, frankly, that I saw myself in in, in in many cases. In other words, I think of myself as someone, hopefully with some uh, talent and some experience in education, certainly no small degree of ambition. And I, and I want to put that talent and, and um, experience and, and potential t- to use. The, the character's I was writing about in the book, I think went through something similar. I mean, there's lots of differences, especially between the two systems, Russian and American, and we can talk about that. So perhaps the comparison breaks down pretty quickly. But I did found myself, at least to a certain degree, sympathetic with the people I was writing about, uh, sympathetic to their personal journeys and how they ended up in the situations they did and how they could have been tempted at every step along the way to make compromises that they at least convinced themselves were in the service of something greater, of their ideals, of their ambitions. They weren't just being purely self-interested and corrupt in the moment. They really thought they were acting, if not in the greater good, then in the good at least of their greater ambitions or aims or desires for themselves and their lives and their careers. And, And that I think is pretty universal and understandable. And I hope the end result is that it makes Russia and, and Putin-era Russia feel a lot more recognizable and familiar to American readers than it might perhaps otherwise seem. How did they How did they regard you? You know, here's this American journalist, you know, because you talk to a lot of different people uh, from all different regions of Russia. Um, you know, what did they, did you get a sense of how they understood what, you know, what you were doing and why you were interested in them? I think the the most basic truth is, which is um, I've encountered in, in almost all of my reporting, not just particular to the book, is that how much people like to talk about themselves and or and, and be listened to. Um, and I think one advantage I, I had in, in reporting the book and hopefully still have as a reporter here is that um, I, I think I'm a pretty disinterested um, interlocutor, if that's the right term for it. In other words. I'm I'm not looking to um, play gotcha. I'm not necessarily looking to kind of judge people or, or argue with them. And I, I don't necessarily have my own um, strong kind of position on, on, say, the acceptability or morality of their compromises. I mean, in some cases, that's pretty glaringly the case, and you can't ignore the moral implications of someone's compromise. But I tried to do my best to avoid those characters, that I, I was less interested in people for whom their compromises were so obvious, either obviously um, nefarious and bad or, or obviously saintly and good, uh, either extreme just interested me less personally as a reporter and a writer. So I tried to find people who were in that gray zone and where, where I was genuinely, um, not exactly confused, but I was genuinely unable to render some um, stark moral verdict of my own. And I'd like to think that that came across in, our interviews and conversations that I just wanted to hear them out and, and understand them as they understood themselves. And I think that's a pretty rare 
thing in life. And, and that's not because I offer something so uniquely brilliant or I'm some singularly gifted reporter. Not at all. I think it's just in general, a rare opportunity for people, especially people who have worked through issues of compromise that do gnaw at them, even if they don't necessarily outwardly project it, the chance to have someone show up who just wants to listen to them narrate their life on their own terms. I think that can be appealing and and, and was appealing um, uh, for people to to sort of be listened to uh, with earnestness and and seriousness and and I guess or I hope some some empathy, which again I I wield even toward people who I don't necessarily agree with. Now you, you begin the book by overviewing um, Yuri Levada's attempts to try to understand Russians. Um, you know his first concept and most famous one was uh, Homo Sovieticus, where he tried to look at how or at least understand the ways the Soviet system shaped you know, Soviet people, you know, in the, in, in the late seventies and just from really from the sixties starts thinking about this, but in, well into the eighties when he's able to do the work. Um, and then in the early two thousands, he develops another archetype, which is the wily man, which is serves as your, you know, figure in which you're looking at, uh, you know, these people you profile in Russia. Uh, can you talk a bit about these two figures and, and their importance and what attracted you to the, the wily man concept? Homo Sovieticus was a term that appeared in, in the mid-century and, and throughout the second half of the 20th century used not just by Levada, but other Soviet um, sociologists to describe this kind of Soviet person who emerged as a result uh, of the Soviet system, this new kind of um, uh, personality type who was both uh, passive in terms of his or her relationship um, to the state, but also aggressive as a kind of compensating measure toward um, fellow citizens, someone who was both untrusting, also indifferent, um, resourceful, but but passive, as I say, and understood that it was easier and, and ultimately more profitable to play one's game uh, within uh, the system. And Levada was hopeful that that personality type, this homo sovieticus, would slowly disappear with the slow and and then sudden dissolution of the Soviet Union itself. And he saw survey data that he himself was um, gathering in the late 80s during Perestroika that that showed exactly that. He saw citizens becoming more open, more trusting, more self-reliant, and so on. And as the 90s turned into the 2000s, Levada uh, had a, another change of heart as he saw the data showing that that people's attitudes were moving back in the reverse uh, direction, that even as the Soviet Union faded into history, uh, by the year 2000, a lot of those personality traits that he saw endemic to Homo Sovieticus were proving not just durable, but actually reproducing themselves in, in new generations. And so 2000 was the year both when Putin ascended to the presidency, but also, interestingly, when Levada sat down to write a new essay that he called The Wily Man. And The Wily Man was his attempt to diagnose or or somehow categorize this personality type that could no longer be called Soviet. Homo Sovieticus didn't really make sense anymore because Soviet Union was now a decade um, uh, uh, in in the past and and, um, with every day only becoming more um, uh, part of ancient uh, history. So if this new creature was both durable and reproducing, 
who could it be? And, and Levada came up with the term, the wily man. And in this essay, which I'll quote from very briefly, uh, Levada describes the wily man as, quote, not only tolerating deception, but is willing to be deceived and even requires self-deception for the sake of his own self-preservation. Levada saw the wily man as ultimately a clever and resourceful creature, quote, he adapts to social reality, looking for oversights and gaps in the ruling system, looking to use the rules of the game for his own interest. But at the same time, and no less important, he is constantly trying to circumvent those very same rules. So when I came across that essay much later, this is in around 2012-13, it immediately held great explanatory power for me, a kind of key that opened up a lot of what I was seeing around me, even though as I, as I just said, the essay had actually been written by then, you know, more than a decade before, but it felt very durable and, and very helpful for, for helping me make sense of the Russia I was seeing around me. Let's talk about some of the characters that stand out to you that represent this wily man. Um, you know, who, who are these individuals? Can you give, give a couple of examples? Sure. The first main chapter of the book is a character I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, Constantine Ernst, who's the head of Channel One, the largest state television network in, in Russia, which gives him outsized power, something like the unofficial minister of propaganda. But he's also a self-described auteur who grew up on art house cinema and maintains a lot of those sensibilities to this day. And there's an extent to which Channel One actually has certain aesthetic or artistic credibility, even as its political and informational program engages in what I think could fairly be called propaganda. So understanding how someone like Ernst walks that line and combines those two parts of his duties or the, the, the dual parts of his role and, and the extent to that they come into conflict was, was very interesting to me. And that forms the basis or the shape of that um, character. There's a human rights worker in Chechnya named Heda Saratova who after coming uh, under threat and watching her colleagues come under threat, in some cases even be uh, murdered um, uh, as the Russian administration of Chechnya gave way to the Kadyrov regime. She herself uh, drifts closer toward uh, the Kadyrov administration and ends up being a kind of um, uh, sympathetic or in-house, in quotes, human rights activist, uh, that does so with the imprimatur and, and blessing of the uh, Kadyrov uh, system, but she still tries or claims uh, to try to help individual victims um, of that uh, of that system. Uh, I think I was most struck by the case of Dr. Lisa, another humanitarian worker, uh, Elizaveta Glinka, a doctor who became a very beloved charity worker in Moscow at first for her work with the terminally ill in providing some of the first hospice care available in Russia and then with the homeless population in Moscow. After the outbreak of war in eastern Ukraine in Donbass in 2014, out of what she says, and and I, I believe is the case, a kind of universal humanistic impulse, she wanted to help the victims of that war, the civilians trapped in the war zone, especially uh, children and children who already had chronic illnesses. And she wanted to to bring as much medical care to those um, children and, and uh, civilians as she could and, and, and also evacuate those who couldn't be helped 
in Donbass and bring them, say, to Moscow or elsewhere in Russia where they could get the medical care they needed. But to be able to pull that off logistically, she needed the sign-off and the support of uh, the Putin state and, and ended up in an ironic position that I think was troubling for her and it cost her a lot of former friends and allies, but she ended up essentially having to appeal to Putin and those around him uh, for their benevolence uh, and, and charity in helping those who were suffering or um, or risk suffering from a war that in fact had been started by Putin and those around him. So there was a deep and um, tragic irony to her position, but as she understood it, her role was to help people. And if she was in a position to do that, she felt it was her obligation to use her connections, her resources, and all avenues available to her to, to bring help to those concrete people who were trapped in um, that war zone. And she tried to maintain a position or a standing that was outside of politics. But of course, uh, so much in life, especially war, is a deeply political act. So that was a very um, hard and maybe impossible balance for her to hold. And in fact, it was her proximity to the Kremlin, you could say, that was the thing that eventually led to her untimely death. In 2016, she agreed to go on a would-be humanitarian mission as it was organized or claimed to be organized by the Russian Ministry of Defense to Syria to do what she had done elsewhere, visit hospitals, bring medicines, that sort of thing. It would be good PR for Russia and the Russian state, which could show Dr. Lisa on television joining its mission to Syria. Um, but she would also be able to do some concrete good and, and, and use her name and reputation to help people. But her flight uh, to Syria uh, crashed into the Black Sea. The plane did shortly after it was taking off from a military airport in Sochi, and she died along with all the other passengers uh, on board. So in some direct and, and unavoidable way, it was her relationships and her proximity to the state. Well, certainly that's the reason she was on that plane. So those relationships ended up having this quite um, tragic um, uh, turn and, and result for her. Now, one of the things that, that seems to, um, for all of these different people, whether it's for their own personal ambition, whether it's for out of their, in Dr. Lisa's case, wanting to, you know, help people, they, they all run up against the Russian state in some form or fashion. Um, and, and this, you know, and people need to make compromises and maneuvers around various figures of the state. And, and you, and you, you know, you said at the outset that you, you found some sympathy uh, in this and empathy in this, and in, in some cases even saw yourself in some of these efforts to compromise. Um, and, and you write that, uh, quote, in the United States and most other countries in the West, such forces emanate from all manners of places. That is the forces that force us to make choices and compromise and, and acquiesce. It is the singular role of the state that gives this dynamic otherwise perfectly relatable and universal its particular Russian tinge. Talk about that and what you mean about the particular Russian tinge of the, the presence of the state. What I mean is that there's a kind of omnipresence to the Russian state's role in life that I don't think is quite the same in America. And again, that's not to say, as I hope I got across in that passage, there aren't pressures to conform and compromise 
in the U.S. Of, of course there are, but they can come from all manner um, of directions and, and levels. It can come from your uh, company's HR department. It can come from your peer group. It can come from people uh, on Twitter. Uh, whereas in in Russia, I found there's a more singular kind of monopolistic role played by the state. And, and a character who comes to mind is Kirill Serebnikov, the theater director, a quite gifted um, avant-garde experimental theater director who came to prominence in Moscow in the mid-2000s um, for his daring and original productions, and for a while really basked in the favor and largesse of the state. There was a moment in the mid-2000s when the Putin state thought it could be politically advantageous for it to be seen to be close to avant-garde experimental young artists like Serebnikov, that they could somehow benefit from, from that um, audience or, or um, the support of that audience. And so Serebnikov really uh, benefited from, from the state's uh, largesse, its financial largesse and administrative uh, largesse, and received not just appointments um, to state theaters to put on productions, but also large grants for experimental art uh, festivals and symposiums, and even at one point put on a play that grew out of a novel uh, written by Vladislav um, uh, Sirkov, the kind of gray cardinal of Putin's Russia uh, at the time. And as I was speaking to a, a friend or acquaintance of Serebnikov's about why he allowed himself to so, grow so close to the state or, or benefit from the state, seeing as he clearly himself harbored no great enthusiasm for the Putin system. If anything, it seemed pretty obvious, both from his personal uh, behavior and statements, but also his um, theatrical productions, that his sympathies really lie with um, the opposition. And, and, and he was a liberal, and uh, that, that again came across both in just his actions as a private citizen, but also um, uh, his, um, what, what could be read and seen through his uh, theater and film uh, productions, but the this person who was close to him, when I asked, you know, why would someone with those leanings um, grow so close to the state? The answer I got was, well, you have to understand that the fundamental economics or, or reality of of making art in Putin's era Russia, especially when it comes to theater or film, and it's not as if you have the choice of do you want to make a movie with state money or without state money. The question is, do you want to make a movie at all? And so that inescapability of the state in something like theater and film arts does feel unique to Russia, or at least a, a key difference between a place like Russia and the United States. If you're a creative person, there are all, uh, it's not that it's easy uh, financially to make a living and a life as a creative professional in the United States. Not at all. Um, it, it's extraordinarily difficult to be an artist, whether on theater or uh, film or, or visual arts of any kind. Um, but in, in Russia, the sort of path toward success, toward financial sustainability, lies really only through the state. And so it becomes inevitable, this compromise of how deep are you willing to go uh, in those relationships? What are you willing to agree to? What is the red line for you? What will you refuse? How will you extract some personal benefit while still staying true to whatever um, ideas uh, of, of the important and necessary and, and good that drove you in, in the first place and how you balance all of that becomes really, as I said, in, inevitable. Um, and, and that is, I think, 
not exactly particular to Russia in terms of world history, not at all, but, but I think a big difference between um, Russia and the United States as it is today. Um, one of the, the interest that the kind of ironies that I see about uh, with the concept, well, maybe it's not an irony, but one of the things I, I see with a concept like the wily man is, you know, these people come across as incredibly individualistic, rational, calculating, conscious of the powers around them. Um, does it, and it, and it sometimes it gives the impression that you know, Russians are almost a different creature than anyone else in the sense that they're they're more rational and more calculating and more conscious than regular people. Um, what is your your thoughts on that? Uh, I'm not sure that there's anything on a genetic level, right, that that makes them more predisposed to that. I mean, if all I guess I would feel comfortable or, or confident from my reporting saying is that, of course, historical conditions and, and social political frameworks bring out or require certain traits or, or accentuate or incentivize certain traits more than others. And in, in that sense, I think absolutely. And, and here we can talk about a continual history going back to the Soviet period, or maybe even before there are uh, moments in, in pre-revolutionary history and, and, and culture and literature, where we can find some kind of proto uh, evidence or, or the evidence of a proto wily man in the writings of Pushkin and, and others, but certainly this homo sovieticus slash wily man type was the kind of ultimate and inevitable product of the Soviet system. Um, uh, and it was the, the person who of course would emerge as, as uh, that who was best equipped to navigate and survive that system. And, and given the continuity in so many structural ways between Soviet uh, Union and, and post-Soviet Russia uh, and, and a un- processed historical gestalt that remains um, uh, in, in the air and in the minds of, of so many and never really worked through collectively. I think it's only inevitable that that personality type um, continues um, uh, today. So that's to say there are all these outside or ex- external reasons why those kinds of traits are in demand and, and useful uh, for someone in uh, today's Russia, to return to the example of someone like Serebnikov. Part of his success as a theater director was his wiliness, I guess you could say, right? That was not a superflu- superfluous or unrelated trait when it came to why did he do so well and, and rise so high inside the um, theater and artistic community in the mid-2000s. Uh, um, same thing um, goes for Dr. Lisa, who we uh, talked about, you know, why was she such a successful humanitarian in terms of the, the scale of the work she was able to do and the amount of people she was able to help? Well, that was very much tied to her ability to know uh, what to say uh, to whom. And it's very interesting that her fund, her her charitable organization, really fell apart in quite actually a nasty and discouraging way after her death, torn apart by infighting and rivalries and, and, and um, various people being um, kind of offended or taking offense at, at others and, and um, devolving into recriminations until finally the organization split in two. And the, the point of, of that and, and the point of the non-viability, as it were, of her organization after her death, I think goes to show that there was something unique, um, not just about Dr. Lisa as a humanitarian, but there was something unique about Dr. Lisa as someone able to navigate and straddle 
so many of these different worlds. She knew how uh, to ask for things from Kremlin bureaucrats. She knew how certainly to care for the sick and the weak uh, and the wounded, but she had a unique gift that others who had perhaps the same intention or desire to help lacked. And I think that um, that revealed itself very quickly in, in how um, her organization um, sadly uh, fell apart after her death. So these these traits, which you could loosely call wiliness, though that's perhaps too broad and kind of clumsy a term to encapsulate all these different characteristics that I write about in the book, but nonetheless, for the sake of conversation, um, the, the traits that we can broadly uh, put under the umbrella of wiliness, I think, are um, not kind of accidental or not superfluous to people not just navigating the the Putin system, but really thriving in it. In fact, certainly thriving in it. If you if you want to make good uh, on your aims and ambitions in that system, then I think a, a bit or more than a bit of wiliness is going to be required sooner or later. Let, let's talk a bit more about you know comparing comparing this the the American situation and and what you observed in Russia and in particular you know in the last four years under the Trump administration we've had a lot of people who are kind of who are put in these kind these positions where they're trying to straddle the line and and do what's right uh, uh, but on the, the same time you know maintain their positions within the Trump administration. I mean, Dr. Fauci is is certainly one. And there's been a, a couple other figures that have come out of the woodwork to, you know, do their best to prevent some of the worst impulses of the Trump administration, but not necessarily break from it. So how do you understand that in light of what you've what you've researched and written? I think that just like uh, Levada's Wiley Man essay gave me this framework for understanding Russia, reporting this book has really given me a framework for understanding the United States. And and I think uh, there's a lot of this Wiley phenomenon and there's a lot of Wiley men and women in in Washington. That's, of course, always been the case. Washington is a city that um, has long required a certain degree of Wileyness to, to rise up the political ranks. But I think the Trump age has made that all the more acute and, and dramatic. And, and now the stakes are so high, especially when we think about someone like Dr. Fauci, whom you mentioned, who absolutely must be extraordinarily wily in order to do his job, in order to maintain the good favor and the ear of the president, to have some access and, and influence, really, to be able to not just be in the room, but to be able to uh, fight for a particular um, policy um, uh, ideas or, or um uh, measures that are necessary in, in combating the pandemic and the worst um, manifestations of it. But of course, he can't actually turn into an outright uh, antagonist uh, of Trump because that would see him lose that access. And so I'm deeply sympathetic um, to his position. And I think a large measure of my, my sympathy and, and the way I at least imagine I understand his position grows out of my reporting on, on Russian uh, wily men and, and wily women, you know, and there's something to be said for his predicament, comparing it maybe to the one of Dr. Lisa. I mean, they're both doctors, so maybe that I don't want to sort of overthink uh, um, uh, that comparison just based on their, their medical uh, backgrounds alone. But, but nonetheless, you know, both of these figures are people who deep down, I'm convinced in, in Dr. Lisa's case, and certainly in Dr. Fauci's case, are, are driven by a, a humanitarian um, doctorly impulse of simply wanting to help people and provide 
uh, care to people and, and as much care for as many people um, as they can. But they found themselves in circumstances, however different, nonetheless united by this notion of that um, to get that help and, and to maintain the relationships that are necessary to get the resources they believe they need. They need well, you got to be a little bit uh, wily in order to to survive um, those uh, the, the circumstances in which they find themselves. Now, your book is is also quite, you know, a personal journey uh, where you, you know, not only did you travel around a lot to to inter- to talk to these various characters, but there's a lot of personal reflection as well in, in kind of your place vis-a-vis them. And you, you spoke a little bit about about that. Um, so how did researching and writing this book change you as as a journalist or a person who's working in Russia? I think it, it deepened uh, the sense, to put it crudely and, and inelegantly, but um, it's complicated. In, in other words, um, it sort of scrambled, I think, even further my notion of, um, you know, who's good and who's bad in the Putin system. Uh, it, it didn't necessarily change my feelings about the overall system. I think I remained pretty clear-eyed about understanding its deep um, weaknesses and um, really kind of pernicious um, attributes. But in terms of understanding what it takes to survive and and even thrive inside that system, I think I softened or mellowed even further in my sense of um, what uh, is kind of necessary or or okay and and how I um, relate to that. And, and, And therefore, that the durability of the Putin system maybe has a lot more to do with the buy-in, even if it's kind of forced uh, buy-in, even if people's arms are being twisted and they have no choice but to buy-in. But but the way that people have been brought into the system and given opportunities to really thrive uh, even inside of it, that maybe that goes um, longer or, or in terms of explaining the Putin system's durability than just this kind of cage of repression and propaganda that Putin and those around him have locked the population uh, inside of. Yeah, it certainly suggests that, you know, uh, a lot of people would have a lot to lose, right? It gives that perspective of if you have a lot of people buying in, they they in some ways represent a, a class of, of people who have interests in the system you know, continuing more or less the way it is. Now, you know, they may want some cosmetic changes here or there, but uh, a kind of the the collapse of the system that many of us kind of imagine, or even the the you know a fundamental transformation of you know the way Russia is governed. Uh, you know, this suggests that the buy-in suggests that a lot of people have a lot to lose on a personal level. Yeah, and I think that as you've um... Uh, helpfully or, or correctly articulated there, the Putin system, especially in its early years, and I think it has changed over time, and we can talk about that in a minute, that historical trajectory, but was really good, actually, um, at offering a kind of big tent version of politics and society in which there was room for all types uh, inside the Putin system. You could be a neo-Stalinist gulag apologist, or you could be a uh, kind of memorial-style um, you know, researcher and activist um, devoted to documenting uh, the crimes uh, of Stalinism. And, and there was a moment in which uh, Putinism offered spaces for all those uh, types that you could be Kirill Serebnikov with your experimental avant-garde 
plays, or you could be a total reactionary uh, old school patriot who only wanted to make films about the glory of the Soviet army in World War II. And, and both of those types of film directors could get grants from the Ministry uh, of Culture. And I think that was a real, I don't know if it was an insight of the Putin system. You know, I don't know how much that was by design. Um, there is some evidence that people like Sorokov in the early years actually were conscious of that and, and tried to make um, Putinism, give it that kind of big tent flavor. And I think that's when wiliness of the kind I described in, in my book was at its greatest um, utility or, or, or hold the, held the greatest sway over uh, the, the population, over society, that, that time when someone like Serebnikov really basked in the glow of the state. And that has changed over time. And I think the space for the allowable and the flexibility of the Putin system has really narrowed, narrowed quite dramatically. I mean, it's impossible to imagine uh, the state having the kind of um, heterodox, contradictory flexibility it had, say, 10 years ago when it was funding someone like Serebnikov um, uh, today. And I, it's, it's made the benefits of wiliness shrink. In other words, it's, it's sort of harder and harder to, meet, to stay true to yourself and to pursue those ambitions and, and goals and vision you had for yourself and your career initially and, and not having to bend too much. The, I think the ask has become much higher, the, the extent to which the Putin system demands a sort of loyalty um, to it that, that makes the compromise much more difficult or the bar for a compromise much, much higher. Um, that has really uh, changed. And, and as a result, the kind of benefits of wildness have, have shrunk because uh, unless you're willing to make those more dramatic compromises, there really isn't as much on offer for you um, anymore. And, and I do wonder if I, I'm not one of these types who thinks that, you know, woe is the Putin system or, or wither the Putin system tomorrow. And that's not because I have any great affection for it. I think that's just, we, we've uh, I, and along with many of my colleagues, have been burned too many times by predicting the imminent collapse of the Putin system, that I'm just out of an abundance of caution and, and um, declaring myself out of that game. But I do think that uh, the Putin system can only become less durable as that window for wiliness narrows. And that, uh, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't make me a kind of Nostradamus of political science. It's just, by definition, as the system begins to exclude people it once was able to find ways to include as that tent becomes not a big tent, but a smaller tent. I think just by definition, the system becomes less stable as there are more and more people who are left out of it. There isn't room in the system for someone like Serebnikov. I mean, the his story ends with him being the subject of this um, sprawling and, and seemingly quite obviously politically motivated embezzlement and corruption case that threatened to send him to jail uh, for for many years, so so he's someone who's really fallen afoul of the state in some uh, obvious way, and uh, I, I think that's true not just for the characters in my book, but but for a society at large. The calculus for wildness has really shifted uh, quite dramatically uh, in in just the time that I've been living in Russia. Now, this this to me, you know, does it? I think maybe from a different perspective, but. I, I do uh, think that one of the major challenges the Putin system has, and it's had this challenge in the last couple of years, and it's kind of just keeps kicking the can down the road, you know, with like Crimea, I think it was allowed to kick the can down the road. But I think one of the major challenges is how does it continue to justify its own existence? 
because as you said, you know, in the mid 2000s, it was a far more pluralistic system. Uh, it didn't have to have a lot of openness in terms of politics, but it had to have a lot of openness in terms of, of pluralism for people to live, you know, certain lives for fill for full, you know, full lives, um, which it still has. But I think it, in order to, and and it also allowed a large measure of social mobility uh, of enough people to, you know, build this buy-in, as as you said. And I think one of the challenges moving forward is, you know how do they continue to justify its existence based on providing people with, uh, you know, a future, right? Um, I don't, I don't know if you, you have any comments about that. Well, at, toward the end of the book, I go to spend some time with some young people. The, the epilogue of the book is, is really about the so-called Putin generation, people who were born or came of age after Putin took power in the year 2000. So are people who are in, you know, 18, 19 or, early 20s. And I wanted to end the book with a forward-looking chapter about what does this generation think about compromise? You know, are they wily in the way that their parents um, are or have proven to be? And I had this very interesting conversation with this um, guy, uh, young young man who was um, in his late teens at the time named Dan- Daniel Priliepa, who came to my attention because he participated in Putin's annual call-in show, this kind of extravaganza in which Putin plays the benevolent czar for hours on television. A very uh, unique Putin-era phenomenon, um, thought up, uh, interestingly, in the ways that stories intersect by Konstantin Ernst at Channel One. Uh, he talked to me a bit about that, uh, about how he came up with that idea and, and Putin approved of it. Um, but uh, Daniel went off script in a way that was really interesting, and he asked Putin about corruption, uh, connecting it to the story of his own family that was supposed to be in line for an apartment uh, through the state due to his father's uh, military service, and and that apartment was not forthcoming. And and Daniel asked a really forceful question about corruption inside the state apparatus and the state essentially not fulfilling its promises. And Putin was really, um, I don't want to say exactly flabbergasted, but but he he was uh, stuck for a minute in, in not knowing exactly how to answer. It's rare that, you know, on live television in a format like that, Putin is really given a truly hard or uncomfortable um, question. You could see this moment of actual humanity in the sense of um, not that Putin sort of broke out uh, into this kind of deeply sympathetic or human, humanistic impulse, humanity just in the sense of he actually had to kind of work through a reply in real time. And you could see not a you know pre-programmed um, answer, but rather one he was forced in this uncomfortable way to think up on the on the fly, sort of do do real politics, and, and that actually made um, at least that moment of the show interesting in ways that so many other moments um, are, are not. And so I went to go see Daniel in this Siberian oil town called Neftyugansk, where he lives um, deep in in um, the oil fields of West uh, Siberia, and. It was interesting talking to him and in, in how, despite his very pointed question and, and the real animus and, and um, frustration he feels on something like corruption, he doesn't think of himself as an opposition-inclined uh, um, voter or, or activist. He's intrigued by someone like Navalny, who, who is, of course, the country's leading opposition uh, politician, but he wasn't necessarily a, a gung-ho Navalny um, supporter, and in fact was planning to enroll in a um, military um, or kind of Air Force uh, Academy for, for pilots. Uh, because as he saw it, uh, there was no contradiction between serving uh, the state or, and, and um, 
serving particular individuals, or, or rather, I should say, whatever kind of frustration or displeasure he might have felt with Putin in that moment or, or toward the individual politicians, Putin and, and those around him who managed the country, he doesn't necessarily think of Putin and the state as one in the same thing, which was interesting to hear from someone who actually quite literally uh, has only known those two things as one and the same thing. Um, and what struck me in talking with Daniel and, and people his age, some of his friends in Neftyugansk, other young people around the country, is that they had this or have this very non-wily expectation for the way they think the state should work. In other words, they don't want to have to come up with these clever workarounds in order to figure out how to get what they want from the state, that they'll you know, profess outward loyalty, but actually, you know, when the state's not looking, do their own thing and always be on the lookout for these workarounds and, and loopholes and actually be trying to cheat the state here and there to fulfill their own interest. And, and that that game of kind of subterfuge would, would um, uh, dictate or, or, or um, in some way exemplify their relationship with the state. That is very much the behavior and, and modus operandi of, of the wily man and the wily woman. They, Daniel specifically and other people um, of his age cohort I talked to, they just want the state to function as it should, as it says uh, it, it will, as it sort of declares its intentions. They just want a kind of straightforward relationship with the state. They just want the state to do the things that it announces and declares are its competencies and responsibilities. They don't want to have to engage in this complicated winking game of um, subterfuge. They don't want to be wily. They just want to behave rationally and straightforwardly and directly and honestly and have the state do the same thing. Um, they're, not, they're not opposed to the state, right? They're not revolutionaries. They're not looking down to tear down the system. They just want the system to function like it should so they can go on building their lives and careers um, straightforwardly. And, and I think that is an important, uh, that felt like an important, not exactly discovery, but, but thing to understand about how could this age cohort, um, they're not wily, but they're also not revolutionaries. And they're this other way. Um, what, we'll, what we'll see is like, does that change with age as, as someone like Daniela actually enters, uh, Daniela actually enters university and begins his career, you know, will his encounter with life change uh, him in some way? Will he find it inevitable to become wily like his parents' generation? Uh, or will en masse the demands and expectations of that generation force the system itself to change? I mean, that's the great uh, showdown, as it were, the, the looming showdown for Putinism in, in the coming years, the, the outcome of which I think will really determine the direction and even the viability of the system going forward. That was Joshua Yaffa, a correspondent for The New Yorker in Moscow and a prize-winning journalist. He's the author of Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia, published by Penguin Random House. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. 
Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And as always, you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. 